So this week we are talking about multimodal and multitask models. These are machine learning models that can generalize. Multimodal models can generalize to understand different types of input. For example, the same model can understand images and text. And multitask models can generalize their knowledge across different types of problems, applying what they've learned from one task to solve another task. So you can derive some sort of map of meanings in the embedding space. And it seems like we have gone one step further in that we can take data from whatever media, whether it's images, audio, or text, and be able to map it into the meaning space now so that they're all the same meaning space. Hey, this is Sri. I'm a YC alum and a research engineer focused on natural language processing for search. This is Will. I'm a YC alumni also and an independent researcher who's worked across e-commerce, cryptocurrencies, and financial industries. Welcome to the Technium, where we talk about the edge of technology and what we can build with it. An optimistic look at the road ahead. How's it going, Will? <laughs> it's going well. <laughs> no, I think we always chuckle because sometimes it's been a little bit since I've seen you. So it's good to be back. It's good to be back. How have you been? Pretty good. I am uh, in a new place. There's like a different background every every time in this season. And right, right. Yeah, I can see that you got a new setup and I think slowly we're trying to up our production values little by little. And I think we're doing a little bit better. Yeah, I, I got to up my setup game just, just like you. So what are you drinking today? So I think this is a throwback to the first episode of the season, Vibes. It's <laughs> some type of mysterious elixir. It will enhance my mind and body. Wait, wait. so the label is like black and white. And it just seems like somebody made it in their garage. Move it over a little bit so that because it's cut off in the vertical. Yeah, vibes. Plus, it's it's vibes with a Y. And so you <laughs> you know the type of person that would name that. It's probably the ex like Web 2.0 executive that made it big. And so they're like, yep. well, we'll take that naming scheme with us. I made my money. So this is just for fun, man. <laughs> Definitely. I'll let you know how it is. Right. And so this this time I picked up something from an Asian grocery store, something called Yuzu. It's a sparkling water, unsweetened, so I guess citrus flavored, Yuzu flavored sparkling water. We'll, we'll see how it is. It's got some sediment in there. And so hopefully this is good. All right. So what are we talking about this week? You said you were super excited about it. Yeah. So this week we are talking about multimodal and multitask models. These are machine learning models that can generalize. Multimodal models can generalize to understand different types of input. For example, the same model can understand images and text. And multitask models can generalize their knowledge across different types of problems, applying what they've learned from one task to solve another task. And uh, quite frequently, the same model is both multimodal and multitask. These two are increasingly correlated, and uh, they can do some really cool stuff. So, so re to recap a little bit, what's the difference between multimodal and multitask? Yeah, so basically a multimodal model can understand different types of input. So Got the it. same model right. can take images and text and video and things like that mm -hmm. as inputs and potentially outputs. Mm -hmm. And a multitask model is a model that can perform well across different types of tasks. For example, it can detect objects and images, but it can also perhaps generate text to answer questions. It can mm -hmm. do multiple different types of things. And so why this is interesting is that in the very, very beginning of machine learning, and even up until recently, people have been working on machine learning models that can do one thing really well. So you would have one type of architecture that can do object detection. You can have another type of model that can do question answering. But increasingly, the way that the research is going is to combine 
these things into a single model that can take different types of input and potentially do multiple different types of things. Wow, that's interesting in the sense that my knowledge of the latest machine learning is a couple of years old, and I did not think that we would be here where we are able to train generalized models to do tasks across different domains and different media types. And so multimodal is the input to the AI system and multitask is the output of the system. And what we're going to talk about today apparently is like how far we've gotten and what does this mean for a near and far future, I guess, where we speculate on how this will change our world. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, the key point here is also the generalization. So, you know, we can talk about what could potentially be going on with these models. What does it mean uh, that they're able to perform so many different types of things uh, at the same time? Is this, you know, evidence that they're learning something deeper about the world rather than just being sort of curve fitting or, uh, you know, uh, extrapolating from their in the inputs that they've seen and things like that? Yeah. So if this is the type of thing that is right up your alley, hit our subscribe button down below and we'll get right to it. So then where should we start, Sri? Because like there could be a lot of different places we can start and go with this topic, because essentially what you're telling me is that we're that much closer to generalized AI and it's no longer just in the realm of science fiction. It's actually within reach of the possible future that we have generalized AI. Am I incorrect here? Or <laughs> I think those are <laughs> controversial statements and... I think, okay, uh, we, we, can, we can pull it back a little. Let's let's start <laughs> first with the multimodal and multitask. So I guess first yeah. with the multimodal, like you said before, like when it comes to machine learning and even the deep learning stuff in the beginning that made a lot of waves and splashes, those were AI systems that were trained specifically to do one thing. They were the Olympic athletes of their particular domain. But now yeah, okay. it's like we are able to train people that are like regular factory workers that have common sense, <laughs> which was way more difficult for AI than, than it was to train Olympic athletes, right? And so yeah. so that, that's the basic breakthrough that, that you're talking about today. Is that right? Yeah, basically. And so just to call out that a lot of this has been possible recently because of the transformer architecture that we mm -hmm. talked about in in our previous episodes, which we'll link to. So definitely check that out to get an understanding of why this unlocks all of this different potential. But yeah, so I think the best place to start is to look at a few of the press releases and blog posts of, of some very hyped up and popular models that have come out of some of these huge research labs and just like discuss what they can do. So yeah, I think there are a couple of interesting models that have come out recently from Google as well as a couple from DeepMind. And the one that I want to start with is a multi-task and multimodal model called Gato. It's a model that has 1.2 billion parameters, which is fairly small, actually, as far mm. as transformer models go these days. Yeah, and I was going to ask: Is it typical? Like, what's is it like? Is is it like five five or is it like six two? Like, what's the size? <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, if you look at GPT three, it has like billions and billions, like I think an order of magnitude more I see. parameters. And uh -huh. so this is like fairly small. So yeah, GPT-3 has a 175 billion parameters. That's oh, okay. Yeah, actually it's like two, two orders, orders magnitude orders smaller. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So Gato is, a, is a, a modestly sized model. And what's interesting about it is that DeepMind has trained this single model to perform 
604 different tasks, they say, mm -hmm. across a few different domains, across natural language processing, mm -hmm. uh, rein not reinforcement learning, but like playing Atari games and things like that. Yeah. As well as like robot arm manipulation in like a 3D simulated environment. So mm -hmm. it is a single model that can do different things that are seemingly unrelated, right? So like natural language yeah. processing would include like answering questions and things like that or completing text. And then, you know, imagine playing a video game does not involve language capabilities at all. It involves maybe vision, maybe some understanding of, of state and things like that. And so it, this one model can do all of these things, not necessarily well at, at the state of the art of like specialized models, the Olympic athletes, like you were saying, of each of right. these sports. Right. But it's sort of an all-purpose athlete that can do like lots of different things like moderately well. Right. We're, we're training the jack-of-all-trades and we're training them <laughs> to be like number two. There's no reason to be number one. <laughs> the cheer is that we're number two, right? So Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, But I think you can the, be number two across a lot of different tasks. That that's that's what we're shooting for. Yeah, and I don't I'm not even sure if Gato is number two, but I would say yeah, it's like probably you know, even imagine being in the top ten percent of each like of a six hundred and four different sports, that mm, person is yeah. like, very interesting regardless of the fact that they're not like winning any medals anywhere. Serviceable, um, serviceable, right? Like yeah, they're they're yeah, yeah. they're they're in the amateur <laughs> softball league after work or something like that. But in yeah, yeah. forty different sports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So so that's Gato. And the reason why it's potentially interesting is that th that's a lot of different tasks. And the the idea would be that in a multitask architecture, the hope is that different tasks can somehow help the model do better at other tasks. So for example, let's say that it learns some concept from, you know, manipulating robot arms. Oh, yeah. It understands some like spatial concept, let's say, and that could help it do better at video games or, or something. Or maybe even learning something about language. If it's seen a description of, of something, it will be able to apply that description to images that it sees. Yeah, this is the main core thing that's so surprising about this. Like, it's not just that the input is multimodal, but that you wouldn't think that a whole bunch of text would have an embedding in some, like, high-dimensional space that would have anything to do with spatially, spatial reasoning of a video game or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like, it's it, it just seems so disparate that it's kind of crazy that people decided to try it and i think this is an old idea right like these multi-task and multimodals ideas have been around since the late 90s i think is that right hmm, yeah, well nobody's sure. like really leveraged it until much yeah. later but at least in my yeah. research like the, the the ideas have been around for a while it's just had, hadn't been practical until recently mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah i think that this is the end game of of AI research, right? Like, even if they were not able to manifest it, uh, as you say, er early on, I think the idea of AI would be to have something that understands the nature of concepts beyond just seeing the examples and then, you know, imitating those training examples in, in you know, a slightly different inputs, right? So the, the, yeah. the hope is that it actually learns, like it knows something, so to speak. Yeah, that's so weird because like the idea of meaning and it's something that philosophers argue about all the time. Like what what is meaning or like what how do you know that somebody knows something that sort of thing? Well, I guess if you have a set of weights that can generate the input, right, then then you yeah. know that that's there. And so I guess you can also explore that it's, it's an embedding space. Is that the correct term where it's like the abstracted um, uh, uh 
representation of a concept in high dimensional space like to us it just looks like yeah. a bunch of numbers like high dimensional vectors but that's that's still what this thing is using right yeah so that's what that's what um all of the inputs to this model are converted into some input vectors and then also the model has some weights it has these parameters right mm -hmm. that it's running its inputs through to generate output yeah. and also the its parameters somewhere are transforming its input into some maybe some meaning vector so to speak so right. the, the caveat here i think that there is a lot more investigation needed into probing the the nature of what's going on and trying like to understand whether let's say a description of something in text is close by in space somewhere to that same image of that same concept is that's what's going on but i think that there needs to be a lot more investigation into whether these multitask architectures are in fact mm. relying on this concept but so, uh, you know intuitively uh, i think it makes sense so it seems like we yeah see see it seems like there's something there it's not just like it's it's an embedding space that's not just tangled up because you can do like man plus what is it man plus king minus woman equals queen and stuff like that so it seems mm -hmm. like there's some spatial order to the embedding mm -hmm. space so you can derive some sort of map meaning of map of meanings in the embedding space and so and it seems like we have gone one step further in that we can take data from whatever uh, uh media whether it's images audio or text and be able to map it into the meaning space now so that they're all pretty, i guess the, the same meaning space so well same yeah. in the sense that it there is a meaning space i don't know if that two different training runs would give you the same meaning space, mm -hmm. right? Like, I, I, it seems yeah. unlikely that, that you would get yeah. that. But but maybe the spatial relationship, the high-dimensional spatial relationship between the different concepts would be same, if not similar, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Gato's out of DeepMind. Uh, and... and so DeepMind is the people that, what did they do? The, the, the Go, is that right? Yeah, they did AlphaGo. They did AlphaFold for protein folding. And so... Yeah, they've they've been coming out with some pretty pretty heavy hitters. Yeah, so that's Gato, which which came out of DeepMind, and then there are a couple of other interesting ones that I wanted to talk about. Actually, most of this has come out of Google and DeepMind. So yeah, it, it seems like it's. I haven't heard of any like small shops that have done groundbreaking work. There's no like AI startups that are doing groundbreaking work. It's all the big guys. Yeah. Which is which is unfortunate, but it makes sense considering mm. how much resources, resources are required for this. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So one other example that I'll just touch upon briefly is Google's Mum, which is a multimodal model which can basically be a search assistant. So you can take, for example, in their blog post, it says that you might be able to take a picture of hiking boots and ask, "Can I use these to hike Mount Fuji?" And then Mum would be able to reason that, you know, looking at the picture of the boots, they are this type of brand or it has these features. It can somehow know some facts about Mount Fuji and how tall it is or what is required in order to hike it and then be able to connect these pieces of information and then answer your question. Can you use those hiking boots to like hike Mount Fuji? And so uh, this is, is able kind of to like do a, that. Uh, no. So that's, that's sort of the aspirational goal. I, I think right now, what they are doing is starting out with this architecture and then they say that they're using Google search data in order to train it for all of these different types of tasks. And so mm -hmm. it is f very much focused on 
the kind of Google search-centric information retrieval, information and reasoning type tasks. Specifically, they're saying these kind of complex questions where you might previously have required multiple Google searches or even asking yeah. humans on the internet about this. Right. You might be able to use this model and, and gather information from the internet and, and, and this model could answer these kind of complex questions for you. Yeah, I mean, it's the vision of the 90s. I don't know if you remember push technology where the vision on the web was to have these agents that go out and fetch this information for you and put it together. And it was relying on the semantic web so that these agents could read it and then mm -hmm. join this data together. And it turned out that it didn't turn out that way. And so instead we, we made these models that doesn't require the world to be marked up semantically and it's still able to to put stuff together. And like you said, the agents that reason and be able to put together the idea of like, okay, like these boots are grippy enough for the conditions at Fuji, you need to like have information from disparate sources. It's not quite there mm -hmm. yet, it's aspirational, but it seems like it's close enough that people are starting to think that there's a plane of attack for that, that kind of question. Yeah, exactly. These things are coming out as press releases to show the potential of these things. We're going to take it at face value, but yeah, I think there's yeah. there's more work to being done. But previously, it would be laughable if some AI <laughs> research lab said, hey, this could be possible with our architecture, right? People would be like, right. get out of here. This is absurd. Right. <laughs> but, what are you but smoking? Now, I want some yeah. of that too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like presumably now, these people who have, you know, reputations to keep among their peers are are publicizing that, hey, like we could do this maybe, like maybe not now, but it's it's in within reach and so like that's pretty cool yeah the equivalent is if like physicists like it used to be that like saying you're working on time travel you'd get laughed out of the room but like like today <laughs> i'm not saying it actually is but it would be the equivalent of saying today it's not laughable if you said i'm working on time travel yeah but it is it is like something kind of out of out of science fiction yeah um, yeah yeah, yeah. Um, anyways yeah so so that's mum which is, is coming out of the Google search space. And then there are a couple of other interesting models that have come out of DeepMind again. So the first, or the, the other of which, actually, it doesn't have a cool name. It's just called Multimodal Interactive Agent. Ah, um, somebody failed in the marketing department there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, they were they were doing well with Agato, and, and we're going to get right. to the next one, Flamingo. But right. this one, they just like, they're, I don't know. It's the Phoned in there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, we don't have any other good ideas. But this is a a model which manipulates a, a type of agent in a 3D environment. It kind mm -hmm. of looks like, what's it, like Rosie the Robot from Jetsons. And it's wait, a, wait, 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 wait. It's the, so back up here. The AI <laughs> avatar, the AI has an avatar in a yeah. virtual environment. And the, yes. their avatar kind of looks like Rosie the Robot. Is that right? Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, in, in the general <laughs> sense. I think, it, like, I looked at the video, it, they look like cylinders and stuff like that. So it's not actually yeah. Rosie the Robot. And is that a yes. Jetsons reference? Do people really know what Jeff Jetsons are? I don't because know. Because it's I'm, been so, so long since they had a remake because, like, Flintstones had one. But, so I don't know if our listeners would actually know what the Jetsons are. That's true. And I, I'm, I'm also, like, not of the generation that should really know what the Jetsons are. Right, right. You're making references to gen things that are before your generation. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's a robot. It's a robot that kind of wheels around in, in a 3D environment. They, right. Of course, 3D the, the, virtual environment, right? Yes. Of course, mm -hmm. the machine learning model has no shape. But it controls a robot that looks like this. And the idea of this uh, agent is that you're able to give it text commands 
such as tidy up the room, lead me to the bathroom, whatever, right? And it is able to do this, and it hasn't been necessarily trained specifically on all of the things that you can ask it to do. It has learned from training data from looking at, I think, humans move around environment and, and perform tasks in response to prompts. But then it's able to generalize because it's able to react to novel commands and do novel things. And so the, the, this is interesting because it is kind of embodied. So previously we, we were talking about tasks that are um, fairly abstract, like mm, things that yeah. you would imagine a computer could do is like take right. in some input, process it, and you know, do an output. Right. This is more um, corporeal, which yeah. you would think is the most foreign thing for computers to figure out how to do. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So this is cool because it's learning to do this in a simulated environment. And then there are another area of research. There's another area of research called sim to real, which is the idea that you can take uh, machine learning models that have learned spatial concepts in 3D environments and then mm -hmm. translate that into the real world and making sure that the model is able to take what it's learned from the simulation and apply it into the physical concepts in the real world. And so it's it's possible that you're able to take a you know, multimodal interactive agent, I guess Mia is, is the name, M-I-A. <laughs> so I'll just call it Mia. So you're able to take like Mia and maybe combine it in the future with some sim to real type research and actually be able to have a little robot that can do things around the house. Didn't it, wasn't it a problem where if you trained AI in a simulated world, it wouldn't actually translate to the real world because it might have been exploiting like some aspects of the physics engine that wasn't actually present in the real world. Have they overcome that problem yet or no? Like, cause like sim to real sounds like you're able to just run the training and simulation and then have it translate over directly to the real world. So th is that not yeah. a problem anymore? It's not like as much as a problem as it used to be. So for certainly oh, what like limited tasks, like being able to manipulate a Rubik's cube, like solve a Rubik's cube, a sim to real like, is able to do that really well. Yeah. Wow. What happened? I'm not sure. Like I'm not like deeply immersed in that, uh, that thing. I think yeah. it's a combination of improvements to the architectures as well as the improvements to the simulation environments to be able to, to generate mm -hmm. better training data. And then as well as the improvements to the model so that it, they're less susceptible to overfitting on the nature of the simulation and more able yeah. to adapt to other unknown types of data. So, yeah, so so that's that's MIA, multimodal interactive agent. And then the last one from DeepMind that we will go into is Flamingo. So Flamingo, again, we're, okay, this one has a cool name, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they hired and another marketing agent. That was when they had they, the, they only the have gap. They only have two, they only have two right. marketing people. <laughs> right, right. So one of them had to have a lame name. Yeah, so then Flamingo is kind of cool because it is a conversational agent like a conversational model where it knows how to do visual and visual and text tasks like jointly meaning that flamingo is able to reason about pictures basically you can give flamingo a picture and then ask it questions about this picture like okay what's in this in this picture what's interesting about this picture what is this thing made of in this picture as well and it's able to answer those pretty accurately and so it's it's basically able to reason and have a conversation with you by looking at something and understanding the inferences and implications of what it's looking at. 
Do you know what, as an aside, I, I know we're not going to go deep into like how these things are put together, but as an aside, do you know what the difference in architecture for Flamingo in so that it's able to do this like reasoning or inference? Yeah, so the interesting thing about Flamingo is that it takes kind of off-the-shelf image transformers and off-the-shelf text transformers and keeps uh -huh. those fixed and what it learns what what flamingo adds beyond these sort of building blocks is the reasoning aspect of it so i think that's that's the one notable thing about the flamingo architecture that i know whereas so is is the reasoning part of the architecture is that also transformers or they came up with something more like traditional programming rather than ai no no it's it's all transformers it's just oh, like okay. flamingo <laughs> like so transformers are basically legos now right and so yeah. They started off, they bought like some Lego kit, right? The off-the-shelf vision Lego kit and the like right. off-the-shelf text Lego kit. And right. then they added their own Legos to that. I see, I see. And their their architecture for Transformers happens to be able to do reasoning for the inputs that were given by the other Transformer sets. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, whereas I think that in in Gato, it's trained. Like it, it, they're not using off-the-shelf components. The, that one model learns right. from scratch like about text right. and vision and things like that. Right, uh, and yeah. so... Okay. Okay. So, so then that's, that's Flamingo where you can like reason through things. You can't just it, like you, you not only can ask like what is in the picture, but you can ask about like relationships to the picture, such as like, what is the koala holding or something like that. Right. And it would be a yeah. answer. Right. Yeah. It may not exactly. like, you can't ask it like, why is koala holding <laughs> like a bourbon yeah. or anything like that, but yeah. yeah I mean, you might, oh, I guess you, you could, right. You can try because then it might, like make up a story about how maybe if the background setting is in a bar and the koala is holding a, a bourbon, like ask why is the koala holding a bourbon? Right. A, a viable answer is, well, it's in a bar, right? But then like a question that both the AI and humans might have trouble answering is why is there a koala in the bar? So, yeah, so exactly. but, but that's the kind of inference that you're talking about, right? Where you can ask yes. like, why is it holding a glass of bourbon? Well, you know, it's in a bar that that seems like it makes sense so yeah exactly yeah so it it, it makes these types of infer inferences and and one of the other examples that somebody had posted on twitter was that they they had a picture of like a basically a toy city in which uh -huh. like a normal sized cat was sitting right so it was a very yeah. very large cat relative to all the buildings and cars and things well so and this was a generated generated photo like whether it's photoshopped or generated it doesn't matter but yeah. basically the image is of a big cat that towers over buildings right yeah, basically. Okay. And yeah. and then they fed it to Flamingo and then uh -huh. asked, like, what is interesting about this picture? And it said, oh, like, the cat is, like, really large. Like, this is a picture of a city and like, it has a huge cat in it, which wow. is, like, okay. interesting. Yeah. yeah, because, like, you need to know, like, what a city is, roughly how big a cities are relative to cats. And then, like, also, like, the, the question was what makes it interesting, right? It's, it's sort of yeah. a subjective, like, subjective right. question. That is so, I am surprised. Can, can we go back and say like, what's so surprising about this stuff? Because like for a normal layperson, I, I think so one of the things is I hear about this stuff and I'm just amazed. I'm just, just it's, it's like, wow. Mind but then blown. like when I, yeah, yeah. Like not just mind blown, but like it's hard to describe the amount of surprise because yeah. given what I know about technology, like this was supposed to be decades decades away and so yep. somehow it's here today and and i'm like how is this possible what is the common thing that is making all this possible aside apparently it's transformers but 
<laughs> the, watch our other the, episode about Transformers. Right. Watch our other episode about Transformers. And, and so some of the true, I guess you could say truisms of machine learning and deep learning before just don't seem like they're true anymore. And so... Mm. Like, so, so let's go over some of these. Cause like, cause like when I tell normal everyday people that are not in tech, they're just like, that sounds like something maybe computers could do because I saw it in a movie once. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, Hey, let's enhance this picture. It's like pixelated. Right. And then it becomes enhanced for the longest time. I laughed at that because like, you know, like you, that's not really possible in the traditional sense because you'd have to like make up information. But now actually yeah. it's like the tech actually caught up with the art. So it's not infeasible anymore you can actually depixelate pictures because computers can reason about these pictures and then just fill in more pixels by adding more pixels given what they understand about the world right because they have this yep. meaning map or like the embedding space like the world of meaning to fill things in so so I, I guess so so one of the things is like we talked about before that like multimodal like a lot of the ai is multimodal so it can accept a lot of different media today right and so mm -hmm. now it's not specialized on one task. And so it, like generalization is a lot better. The other yeah. seems to be that you can train these models to do reasoning through this like concept space so that it can tie concepts together. So you can ask questions and it's able to do a chain of, I guess like rudimentary reasoning about like mm -hmm. what they're seeing. And so you can ask things like, where does a shoe belong? Like what, what, should, what should weather bear wear for this weather or something like that. Like what, what should I wear for today's weather? <laughs> is um, that a, a children's character? Yeah. 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 Sorry. <laughs> weather bear <laughs> okay. is a children's character. <laughs> and, and yeah, that's the exercise. Like given the weather today, like what should weather bear wear? And so mm -hmm. this is an exercise typically for, for children and like AI is actually able to do that sort of thing now without yep. us like explicitly programming, like what is rain? What is the weather? And then tying those inferences together. Like it learned it yep. from, a set of data and then mm -hmm. also what's surprising nowadays that is that it used to take lots and lots of data to train these sort of things like but you're telling me now also that like there's these one-shot learning models in which you don't need nearly the amount of data that you used to is that correct yeah that's right and actually that's the other aspect of flamingo that is interesting is that it's also a few shot learner meaning that it can it, it was trained on these tasks about uh, answering questions from pictures and things like this but it's actually able to take prompts from the end user and say, okay, here are some examples of what I want you to do. And then it will be able to generalize to new visual and text-based task tasks. So yeah, huh. that, that's another aspect is, is the few-shot learning. Yeah, and so that's also surprising. So like all these things are, are surprising. Or like uh, some of these, like com what you would think of as common sense tasks, it requires a lot of dis different disparate things to pull together. And it's like not easy by any means like we usually mm -hmm. as like lay people you would often think that it's something like chess that's much much more difficult than putting dishes in the dishwasher or folding laundry because like most people can do the latter but as it turns out for computers that's so much harder because yep. fabric can fold whichever way and whereas like chess is it's like a known deterministic game where you have mm -hmm. perfect information and so you can you don't even need this deep learning ai to write one that's that's fairly competitive right and, yeah. and so all of these things are, are very fairly surprising did i miss a couple others like what the these like new surprising things about all these like new learning models no i think that's a that's a really good recap of why this is all really really interesting and just to sort of draw you know benchmarks or like like lines of how quickly things have progressed 
so when Andrew Ng started Google Brain back in, I think it was like 2010 or something, which was the, yeah. the first sort of major research lab focused on deep learning for these types of tasks, his motivating reasoning was that computers are not able to answer the question of given a picture of a cat or a dog being able to tell whether it is a cat or a dog. Like this was the level of where computer vision was and where machine learning was at that time. And like, I think it must've been 2010 or something like that. And so we're like, that's not that long ago, right? It is long in that, you know, we're kind of 10. 12 years, 12 years. Uh, And so Uh, 12 years is a long time in technology, but still 12 years is relatively short given that my expectation for the stuff was to be much, much harder. So it would take decades. Well, so so the other the other thing is that I think in I think it was like the nineteen so the the field of AI is is more than twelve years old, right? So it is it's oh, yeah. back you know goes back decades, yeah. and so what's interesting is that basically if you extrapolate, so yeah, twelve years is is a long time, but look at the progress, right? So if if you know a leading researcher was basically starting off with this kind of silly task of you know being able to distinguish cats and dogs. And then we blew through that. It didn't take 12 years to solve the cat and cat versus dog problem. It took, I think, maybe one or two years. But definitely by yeah. 2014, like you said, like a, a lot of these ImageNet-based models were, were able to do this type of task handily, right? And mm-hmm. then we've moved on from object detection. We've moved on from question answering. We've progressively sort of knocked over all of these dominoes. And now we're getting to like not just doing these silly tasks, but talking about inference and reasoning and things like this and so that's that's what's really astonishing is that you know to the layperson, it's really hard to know like what is possible using computers and what is not right. and so right. <laughs> so you know well, yeah, just to give I, a sense yeah I, I think our audience would would be able to tell us exactly which xkcd that is yeah. but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. the it's, it's always tough for lay people to tell like what com- what is in the realm of possibility for engineers and even star trek makes light of this right like kirk is always asking for things that are unreasonable and engineers like "Mm, well maybe they're just like i just want it right yeah 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 so but now yeah i think even for for people like you and me who are in the industry it's becoming increasingly hard to know what is is actually plausible or not Mm, like i think yeah yeah if you had your head in the sand, like let's say that instead of you know paying attention to to AI, you were working on Web three or something, you had no idea what's mm-hmm. going on, right? And <laughs> like then, this guy, <laughs> <laughs> and then somebody comes up to you and says, "Hey, um, did you know like now that there is a machine learning model that you can ask it like questions, give it silly pictures, and it, like it's able to actually understand like what makes them interesting, or like it's able to describe the implications of what it's seeing." you might actually say, like, get out of here, right? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. you're smoking yeah, yeah. something. Yeah, so essentially, like, the thing that I ascribe to lay people, that, that inability to discern whether something is technically possible is slowly creeping into uh, us or, or me, like, if you don't work in AI, right? Like, so if you're in tech, like, you also don't have that ability when it comes to AI technology. Yeah, exactly. So... Yeah, these are all like super, super interesting. So we we kind of covered um, all of the, all of the different um, advancements from all these AI research labs. And so yeah, now I think it's it's sort of the fun part. What are the the second and third order effects of uh, having this type of power like within our reach? I mean, it's well. So the immediate thing is that you can have agents that 
are able to do things on your behalf. And this has been the dream of people on the web since the 90s. For our older listeners, you might remember the push technology back in the 90s. And so the, the dream was that after the basic web pages, what you would be able to do is employ and de or deploy agents on the web to scour the web for information to do things for you, such as like book a vacation. So we'd be able to go to disparate websites and do this. And the way that they would be able to do this is read semantic markup about what all the prices were, what the hotels were, where they were, and then use XML joins to kind of join things together to give you a list of possibilities. And so for watch our of, Watch our yeah. other episode on semantic web. Right, that's <laughs> right, that's right. Yeah. For, for our new listeners, you don't know, but like oftentimes we talk about this stuff and it's all connected somehow or another. And the, the, the threads of technology often intertwine. And unless you kind of put things together, you don't realize that these were all thrown together or <laughs> tied together somehow. But yeah, yeah, like that was the vision. Like they were just like, we can't make computers that intelligent at the moment. So what we'll do is we'll try to make humans do more work by marking up everything. And so it seemed like they were part of the way there, but then never got it because... Well, people are lazy. Nobody like, and people lie, right? And we so we talk about all these things of why people are like humans are unreliable to to semantically mark up stuff. So it didn't. This yeah. sort of thing did not work until recently, I guess, with this with the deep learning, multimodal, and multitask agents or yeah. models. Yeah. yeah. So so I I think that's that's kind of the one of the near term things that would kind of come out of it. And I think I have worked. When you and I met, one of the things I was working on was a CRM system that wanted to do something like this based on like your location, your calendar, contacts and stuff like that. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, I recognize that this is something that is kind of beyond a reach. We, we might need to do something else because like yeah. that, that task of like figuring out recommended next actions to take is really really hard based on just those signals and many people have tried since then and i've seen it in the crm space and also in the wearable space as well for for this sort of thing yeah so i think that uh agents that are able to do things on your behalf are really cool and what's even cooler is that we're seeing glimpses of reasoning in things like flamingo and you know if you've ever done anything like booking travel like you're saying it's not just being able to make some API calls to a flight service and pay money to acquire a ticket. Sure, I think like that is one component of it. But when you're doing something like book me a a trip to Hawaii in in May or June or whatever, it needs to be able to align a lot of different things, right? You need to also book some hotels, maybe also know what your vacation schedule is like so that it can book it during your vacation and not some other random time when you're working like so so there's a, right. <laughs> a lot right. of like different components that you have to put together in order to do this yeah and beyond that it'd be great to know like what the local festivals were so that you can tell traffic and avoid it that sort of thing but like those aren't things that locals would know right but definitely like it'd yeah. be within reach of like ai agents it's, it seems like yeah definitely so i think that's a, that's a really good example yeah i think another another one going off of the the MIA model, the MIA model of the embodied agent is actually having a kind of household robot. And when I say household robot now, I don't mean, um, again, bringing up Rosie from the Jetsons, like a, <laughs> you know, a fully functioning, like 
thing that can do everything. But certainly, like, if you think about something like a fancier Roomba, right, that yeah. rather than only doing sweeping of your floor is maybe able to, I don't know, like... Uh, uh, put stuff away. away. Yeah, put stuff no, away. Like, right. Yeah, put stuff away because like one of the difficult tasks for AI for the longest time was just manipulating everyday objects. But mm -hmm. like you it seems like AI is well equipped to put that all together now so that you can have a robot that like puts away the dishes in the dishwasher. I mean, even yeah. that would be a great help, honestly. Like once I got the Roomba, it was great that it felt great. It felt like I was part of a two-man team. Granted, like I was pulling most of the weight, but at least <laughs> like it was somebody else like helping out with the cleaning so that I didn't have to do that part. Right? right. And having somebody like some other machine that is just like putting cups away or like putting the dishes away in the dishwasher or, you know, just just regular everyday things, keeping things tidy like that can help a lot, especially if you, I guess, if you're messy or if you have like you have newborn children or something like that like for yeah. parents out there like you know that there's just no time to do much of anything so either you drive yourself crazy or you let some stuff go and so having a a equivalent of a rosie even a basic rosie the robot would help a lot with, mm -hmm. with just having keeping your environment sane so yeah exactly and i think that uh, yeah it would be it would be helpful for people who are are busy or they have kids or, or things like that. Or even I know that it was a sort of active area of investment from like Honda of Japan, like because uh -huh. they have a you know rapidly aging population to have a kind of household assistant robots for the elderly. And I think that in, in Honda's robot, they had like a kind of humanoid robot that could like walk it kind of walked funny and it looked like a human. Yeah. You've seen that. You, yeah. As an aside, do you, get the sense that the honda robots are all pre-programmed like it's not yeah, it's not adaptive at all so like one yeah. misstep like it would fall down the stairs head over heels right like it's yeah. not <laughs> i've always wondered like why do they have an entire division devoted to making these things when it's it's clear that i, don't, I, I have no idea I'm, I'm just saying like there, there there's just so much whether they it seems like it was a lot of wasted effort, especially in light of the current AI technology. Like, do you know if they moved mm -hmm. that in that direction at all? Or maybe they it's only for show. It's like a marketing thing. So Yeah, I think it was definitely a marketing thing. And also, like, I don't hear a lot of... Papers know, written by Honda, papers, right? So. Papers by Honda, right? Like, I think that they're not in the game. So probably yeah. not. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that it's a, it's a good problem, a good problem space to work on, you know, to be able to help people with disabilities or, or mm, aging yeah, yeah, or yeah. other types of you know things and, yeah yeah uh, yeah it, it shouldn't just be moving stuff in the house that you're too lazy to do or you don't have time to do but like definitely yeah. like people in japan talk about this because like robots have a different public perception in japan than it does here in the u.s like robots are seen as friendly helpers culturally <laughs> as opposed to in the u.s as evil overlords that are dystopian <laughs> right yeah, and so I think there's a lot of different like philosophical things that you can talk about with this, but we're mostly concerned with like like you said, like is this a good helper? And I think one of the big things that humans need help with is getting from point A to point B, and definitely, you know, we've are working on self-driving cars. But one of the things that I've wondered about was whether these like multimodal and multitasks models are used in self-driving cars because i do know that when you're driving or in self-driving systems you need to do a lot of 
image processing tasks or image recognition tasks. So you need to do like mm-hmm. object segmentation or like, you know, object recognition or, you know, a- any number of things. And so do you know if they use like multitask for that? Because it, it seems like it would make sense for, for something like that. Yeah. So my understanding is that they do not use multitask or multimodal models. My understanding, and again, of course, like all of this is quite secretive, I'm sure, and proprietary, but right. like my understanding from talking to people who work for these type of companies, as well as looking at just their, their org charts, the way that, uh, that they're set up, they have like a perception team, which works on like the perception model, the vision, or like LIDAR 3D point model. Then they have another audio model that, and then they, they basically take all of these different single purpose models and... They have another um, a layer called sensor fusion, which then fuses all of this information together. And then finally, they have like a planning thing, which may be a trained model. It may use a special like uh, handwritten rules to take in all these inputs and then actually make the car do stuff. So my understanding is that it's sort of all pieced together from these individual models built by individual teams, basically. F- fusion sensory sounds like either a band name or an energy drink <laughs> but the but yeah I, the way that they're doing it if that's the case it kind of sounds like feature en- engineering from machine learning a generation or two ago where they mm-hmm. did this sort of stuff by hand and maybe you could argue that at this point you need to because you need some sort of human in the loop but i i guess what i'm asking is whether they're doing th- like end-to-end training with self-driving and it sounds like no at the moment and maybe that's for yeah. the best we don't know so yeah, yeah, I mean it's probably for the best, like in terms of how how much like safety mechanisms that you need, and how sort of understandable you need all of these components to be. Maybe, but like I maybe, think that... or is it just to make humans feel better? Because like the whole thing that we're talking about here is that like these computers now with these models can do inferences, so it should be able to do mm-hmm. safety inferences of whatever it needs to do. So that seems like it, and. And some of these other models, the examples and demos I've seen, you can ask it to explain itself. Now, I don't know if it can lie, but like, <laughs> oh man, right? But it, yeah. you can have them be introspective now too, right? Explain like why they came to the conclusion that they did. Yeah, I think that's actually a, a good point. Which is that, by the way, when we're when we're when we're talking about an end-to-end model, I think what you're saying is that what if there was a single model, maybe like Gato or something that. Mm-hmm then takes in all of the different input, the sound, the LIDAR, Right, the sensor data from the car, yeah. Yeah, and then is able to kind of uh, like munge all of that together and then its output is basically to take an action, like turn the steering wheel at a certain amount. Or or step on the gas, yeah. Step on the gas, hit the brakes, yeah. Yeah, so I think that, yeah, one interesting point that you bring up is that these models now have basically their own type of human interface. They have a text-based conversational interface. At least that's yeah. the prevailing interface that people are building on top of these things. Right. So, yeah, I think that it's interesting to think about to what extent these models are introspective. They actually know what's going on. And, yeah, I think that it would be it would be interesting also because, you know, when we're talking about these multitask architectures, learning from other tasks like there's probably plenty of you know driving videos on the web that they could potentially learn from and generalize from right like i'm laughing because i wouldn't put it beyond some human on this earth to post like their drive from i don't know like los angeles to 
Chicago or something like that, just because they're like, I, I got lots of GoPros. And so I might as well put this yeah. on my YouTube channel. So yeah, there's a lot of yeah. data for, for self-driving cars out there. And, and not only, not only like that type of data, but you know, when we're talking about the mum model that could answer whether you could take your hiking boots to Mount Fuji, um, mm-hmm. at least in principle, this type of model is able to learn from other types of data on the web, like, for example, knowing the nature of mountains and the kind of conditions that are you'd have to endure to climb a mountain and things like mm-hmm. that, you can imagine would be helpful for driving a car also, right? Knowing yeah. the effect of rain on a road without necessarily having seen rain on a road in a self-driving context, you, it still might be able to generalize, like to say, oh, d- you know, rain makes things wet and, and slippery, and so therefore the car should be able to act in this way or that way. And so, yeah, I think that inference aspect could be additive and could help in maybe cases where maybe the common path is is very easy and they use the, the traditional methods, but how do you make the self-driving car react to a scenario that it's never seen before in its training mm-hmm. data? Like you take it off-roading or something, or or maybe it, you it, it caught in an accident, <laughs> right? Or and, you drive uh, off a cliff, and so it's like, oh, yeah. I don't know what this is, but maybe I have a good idea. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, like, let's say that you just some uh, something unexpected happens on the road, and it just there isn't any training data from the traditional model or the traditional tools yeah, that they're using. Right, Maybe right. it'll be able to use this type of multitask model to at least push it in the right direction, if not get it completely right. Yeah, oh, that that would be hilarious if you drove it off a cliff and in, inferred that you needed wings so it would like fly, fling the doors open or something like that in a <laughs> try to flap. Fu- right a futile attempt to flap i guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that the <laughs> the the question that would remain for this is what you brought up is like when you have this text interface to these models and you ask them to explain themselves do they know what they're talking about? Like, are they actually able to understand what's going on within them? And then secondly, do they have the capability to lie? Or if not lie, just make up random stuff because yeah. they don't actually know, but they just have to tell you something. So they'll say, right. you know, why did, why did you do this? And it would just make up some random thing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, because in the GPT-3 model, like if your goal is to have it generate something imaginative, then it doesn't matter. It can lie all it wants, right? And, and you're like, oh, it's being so creative, but that's like a form of lying, right? Because yeah. it's just making stuff up that seems, it's internally consistent. But then mm-hmm. if you're, if you're using it for something like, I don't know, cancer detection or driving, like you really don't, or like you're doing uh, like criminal, not profiling, but like monitoring, I guess, like, and, mm-hmm. and the system judged somebody to be a committing a crime, like you want at least some way for it to explain itself because that stuff needs an audit trail so that humans in the loop can understand why it made the judgment that it did, right? right. But if it can lie or just make stuff up because it ha- feels like, like it's it has to give an answer so it just makes something that's internally consistent then but not like consistent with what's happening in the real world world or like our notions of morality or like whatever it considers external to its system Mm -hmm. then it's just not going to work and so i I don't know that we can have that yeah so i think i think we're a bit of the way there and probably wouldn't want to you know, plug it into my car just yet, but it's a good a good area of of research, right? Like both yeah, the yeah. explainability aspect as well as seeing what multimodal models could do. Could they, uh, at least in a in a closed uh, environment, be able to drive a car? Yeah, that'd be mm-hmm. a cool experiment. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So the uh, the other part that I wanted to talk to uh, talk about is that if we're talking about multitask architectures, and just as a reminder, mm-hmm. like a multitask architectures are those in which they can generalize across multiple tasks, some of which maybe they haven't seen yet, but use the knowledge that they have from the training data from one task to be able to solve a new and novel task. So in this multitask architectures, could you have sort of a multitask model as a service? So basically when I say this, I mean, it is, you can think about it as like a central brain, like a central model that uh, is, is sort of shared, maybe it's hosted in the cloud or something. And then everybody uploads their training data to it or somehow trains it for their particular task. And then by nature of this model being multitask, it gets better and better. It gets smarter and smarter. And so then you actually benefit from from the scaling factor. It almost becomes a network effect where as this thing sees more types of tasks that people give it, it gets better and better. And then it creates more incentive for people to then use that rather than making their own machine learning model and gathering all the training data and doing all that stuff for it. Yeah. Like when we were talking about this in our pregame, like I was imagining it as akin to something like open source where open source usually refers to like a code that is freely inspectable and in some cases like freely usable uh, in a lot of cases it's freely usable and so i was picturing the same thing with like weights because right now a lot of the weights and models uh, you have to dig kind of hard to to find them like they they are available as as repositories but i wish it was more live and active in the sense that the the model is always kind of on as a service and here as a multitask like you would tack on the final couple of layers for your task specific thing and you would mm-hmm. train that to your liking and satisfaction but because it's a multitask where everybody shares all the lower levels then yeah. by virtue of you improving your task and getting your task done you improve the shared model that everybody uses and so in mm-hmm. that way you have like a i don't i guess if it's a general thing you would only need one right like you don't need ones that like specialize for yeah, like you don't need ones that are specialized in some domain. Like it would be general. Right. So you only need one, right? So then yeah. that means like like people talk about the web as the nervous system for the planet, but like this would literally be like an actual brain for this specific planet. Yeah, yeah. Like you can, it's, when you when you mention like a multitask as a service, I'm imagining like a, you know, a brain in a jar that like is yeah, like yeah. plugged in with like some ethernet cables and it like right, answers right. questions for everybody. Right, and and like the more tasks and more questions it answers, the more that it understands and trains on the tasks that we give it, regardless of how related they are. And it's able to build up its um, embedding space, or I guess in layman terms, we would call it like a mental model or like conceptual model of how the world works. And so that right. that should be a possibility. The scary thing yeah. to me is like whether somebody would want to own that because it could prove to be very lucrative, but I guess it would yeah. push... It, it would be it would be one of those things I think that would push humanity forward if it was globally accessible to everyone so that you could mm-hmm. uh, have assistance to help you do either creative work or research work because like normally you think that like with idle hands people would just do nothing but play video games and eat food or I don't know whatever it is but there's plenty of people that are amateur X Y and Z like gardeners or whatever like people's like elevated hobbies are small yeah. niches and those things could use a lot of creativity and help like even like choreography i imagine like computers like these learning models would be able to help with like innovative choreography that like you know if you could do it in go where people like describe that as what is it move 74 was so beautiful yeah 
I think it was 74, yeah. right? In in the the deep mind, then I, I don't it it doesn't seem with beyond the realm of possibility that you have the AI as an assistant to help generate possibilities for choreography that normal human beings wouldn't have thought to do. So mm. that that would be yeah. pretty interesting. So yeah, yeah, that would be globally accessible and help push like human culture forward. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're you're being an idealist uh, uh, we ought to start somewhere source. right <laughs> no, 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 no. no no what i'm saying is like i think i think you're coming at it from the open source like yeah, yeah, freely yeah. available mm-hmm. aspect of of things and i, I think it's, I am, it's like, more thinking it would be a service that like would yeah become yeah this like centralized network effect type situation is it uh, private but, that you're imagining yeah like i was i was imagining that like Google oh or yeah would have yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Bra- cloud brain as a service and then everybody makes it better and better and then like you know, it, it becomes like a, uh, what do you call it? Like a monopoly type. Of yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of many possible futures. I think like you, there are like in the cryptocurrency world, like people don't want to hear it, but there's a lot of underlying work on decentralized technologies that, so you could, it, it is possible to host, um, these weights and, and biases for these models on a decentralized network so that yep. no one person owns it. And I think it's not outside the realm of possibility to have it running also, but right now a lot of the decentralized technologies are focused on storage. And so less on decentralized computing. Well, that's not true. Like Ethereum is decentralized computing, but like because everybody has to run the same code, like it's really slow. And so they're trying to find ways to scale it so that somebody can run a piece of code and you don't have to run it yourself but be able to verify that they did the right thing and so we talk about this in our previous episode on zero knowledge proofs so you guys should go check that out if (laughs) if you can and so the the, so so i i think that that's a likely possible future if like it's Mm -hmm. in central repository in like google brain that people use i was coming at it more from an open source sort of thing in that taking analogy from history of the web not in that because it was freely available it it changed a lot of things about human culture technology progression any number Mm -hmm. of things because it was democratically available and so i imagine that if this was at least freely accessible to regular everyday humans that you will see both innovative beautiful things that push culture forward and you'll see a lot of nasty innate things as well as dangerous things out there so you'll get the equivalent of cat pictures and you'll get the equivalent of like snakes on a plane so i mean like (laughs) (laughs) those are both things that the internet made possible so yeah no yeah i I like your your where you're going with maybe combining these multitask models with decentralized computing like where maybe this is a shared resource and yeah. updated in a decentralized way and then you could create some incentive structure for people to host it and run it and, and maintain the upkeep of, of this type of thing right so it becomes a literal public utility rather than something like owned owned by a corporation yeah yeah so i mean that would be super cool i think that that would like you're saying like unlock a lot of creativity if everybody had in access to an ai and yeah i think like one thing that always bothered me when when journalists and things would write about machine learning and stuff would be, they would say things like an AI has learned to like do this thing or that thing. Oh, they anthropomorphize it or anthropomorphize it. Yeah. That's, that's the, that's the right term. And I think up until recently 
that was not the right way of thinking about it at all because yeah. it's not an AI has learned to like whatever play a game. It's that a team of researchers has <laughs> run c- computer code <laughs> to create a model that can do this game, right? Uh-huh. Like up until recently, it was like that. But yeah, I think now as we're thinking about multitask models and that can generalize to new types of tasks, you can sort of ask them what they're doing and ask them to reason about things. It is much more like an AI akin, has learned right. to do this. Yeah. It's, it's more akin to what the journalist... It's, it's the same thing I was talking about before with the movie Enhanced Pixel. Like we used to yeah. laugh at that, right? But it turns out that like technology caught up. They were visionaries. They weren't like... Uh, we were laughing because it's just... It was like a... We thought it was wrong because it was a misunderstanding of what technology could do, but it turned out that like they were just visionaries in the future of what right. technology could be. And so that's <laughs> in the end, we, we got to eat our own foot. And so, yeah, maybe yeah. the journalists had it right. They were just a little too early with how they described some of this AI. So then some of the other things that I wanted to get to are, are more, I guess, further on, like as a result of our conversation so far, the things that we talked about are in the near, near possible future. But like, I think that the times where we have a lot of fun is when we talk about the far, far possible future. And so I I think with a lot of things, we have a, a good understanding of the technology. So we're able to project out that far with our technology optimism. But here, I think it's a little dangerous because like we can imagine generalized AI to be, to do almost anything. So maybe it, can become a little unhinged, but I'm relying on you to kind of tether us, <laughs> tether us a little bit here. And so yeah. I think one of the things that I thought was interesting was like, is it possible now for AI to learn a test, in, f- learn a test of where you don't have direct data on that task? So like maybe you need the task to fly, but you like for a robot to fly or something like that, or to yeah. do archeological research, but you don't have any of that data but instead yeah. you have a lot of data on driving you have a lot yeah. of data on on like walking or something right. like that you have like books that talk about like bird physiology or something like that and so could yeah. you train on that data and then be able to have it like fly in a like in a robot like is that possible yeah i think that the the jury's still out on exactly how these multitask models are benefiting from learning these different types of tasks and like in Uh exactly what way quantifiable way you know one task is enhancing or or even perhaps detracting from the performance of another one but but yeah i think that that is not like absurd right if you think about it like imagine the way that you learn to drive initially cars were invented very recently in in human evolution our brains actually don't have a car module right but somehow just based on our idea of like how motion works and like walking and whatever doing some other stuff in the world like within a few episodes of driving like you're able to reasonably drive so like yeah but but that's usually what we like in layman's terms call intuition right we can Mm -hmm. we can use our like skills knowledge and experience and kind of do some sort of simulation in our heads to infer like whether some what something is going to be like but then like there are other things that we admit to being out of the realm of human ability to describe or or talk about and so i wonder Mm. if there's also a similar limit and so i think recently i was talking about I, i was reading a an article that talked about a book that was written about like what animal what are animal experiences like because their yeah. senses are a lot of them are so different than ours and so the mm-hmm. thought experiment is like if there was a human a bat 
a bumblebee and whatever like in a room and all of a sudden it goes dark like what would be the difference for everybody and so like for a bat it just wouldn't matter because it uses echolocation right and then there's other ones where like i think eels use electrostatic or something like that and then spiders use vibrations to sense uh, their their world and so like lights going out would make absolutely no difference to them and so yeah and then a lot of mammals use the sense of smell and so mm-hmm. their world is like full of smell. And so like the senses yeah. that you have available to you are very much influences your perception and experience of, of the world. And so right. for us, when we don't have that, it's almost beyond comprehension. So if you want like to, for me to train, to be a mole, like mm-hmm. it'd be really hard because like even all of my like previous knowledge and experience can't really tell me like how to do the things that moles do to say hunt for an in- insect, right? Yeah. Like it doesn't generalize to that. But, and then yeah. similarly, a mole, if you take a mole and try to generalize its data set of experiences and whatever to doing linear or algebra, like, or driving yeah. a car, it just, right. it doesn't generalize very well. And so I wonder if there yeah. are similar limits here. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's like a, a good point. And, and it's a, I think a lot more research has to be done about what exactly is happening when we say generalizing across tasks or generalizing across modalities. The other thing that I would think is that I like the direction you're saying about like, let's not just apply our human centric idea of how thought or, or like the brain works, uh-huh. like, because other animals have other senses and stuff like that. And, right. it, you know, actually, if I were to guess, like if, if we were to think about this type of models as a different type of animal and like, what's, what type of sense does it have that we wouldn't be able to understand or explain that it could use to its advantage. One thing I'm thinking of is that these models have a, they have a sense. Imagine if you had a sense um, that of of the web. Yeah, you know, I see. Like that, there is something. This type of knowledge, like a vague sense of knowledge, based on like you're plugged into this web. I, yeah, I, I think what you're saying is like, what if you had a like we have spatial reasoning with the world around us, and it's almost yeah. to the point of of a background process or intuition. What if you had something similar for the web, in which yeah. like you would have monitors around the web and you could get a sense of the either the shape of the web or like mm-hmm. what people are talking about and so it would yeah. i guess it would almost be like the borg where like you have a sense of the hive mind right and so we have a yeah. glimpse of that with something like twitter even though it's segmented so you kind of know what people are talking about in real time or something like that but you right. you want you want it to be an experience <laughs> yeah exactly and and like in some sense you know a lot of these language models are They've already been trained on, you know, a lot of the web pages, like much more yeah. web pages than a human would ever do. So, that, so that some of that is baked in, and then potentially you could have them continuously ingest like new content as it's produced, maybe from Twitter, or maybe from news, and mm-hmm. things like that. And that, yeah, that could all that could also be a type of sense that's feeding into it, because if you ask a human about some question, like they would be able to apply the human intuition. But then this type of model, it could have a, an advantage in that it's very, very well read and and sort of aware of all all information as it's being produced oh man then relatedly you know, like supposedly people that use gps apps to navigate driving have a smaller hippocampus than say taxi drivers that have to map that sort of stuff in their heads well it used to like all uber drivers use mapping <laughs> mapping things now but and so hippocampus is like this little organ inside your brain i guess like suborgan that that does a lot mm. of the spatial reasoning and long-term memory i believe and so if we are able to get a sense of the web and it's able to do the inference for us, then would we 
would that ability in humans just atrophy over time? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what you know. A lot of the the AGI safety and ethics type people are thinking about is all these different social implications, and I, and I think that yeah, I mean, the one thing that stands out to me that there's still space for, or like where you could have this like human model symbiosis, is that the the important part of things the important part of like let's say software engineering is, is actually not the writing of the code although like that is important in order to get the job done the important part as you especially get more senior is that I, you identify problems you say okay this thing is important for the company or it's important for our group to accomplish and then being able to frame that problem and then execute it right and so like maybe the execution part is getting done by the model and then humans are like framing the problems. Right. But if these models can do inference, what's to say that I wouldn't use it to do the problem statement and and stuff like that? Yeah, I think that's that's probably where the science fiction like I think that is still in the science fiction. Like the, the level of inference now, that yeah. like yeah, like that these models are doing is still very much like a rudimentary type of inference and like not necessarily like having an intuition for like this thing will be important to our customers, let's say. Yeah, customer um, dev is still is apparently the <laughs> ultimate frontier for it for AGI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that that's that's something I can buy because I think I think on both sides of the argument where some people are too quick to say computers will be able to do everything and people on the other side where nah they're they're too far. Both are probably wrong. Yeah. I think the truth is the reality is probably somewhere in between. Yeah, I can buy that. While while we were talking just now, I saw I was just browsing through Twitter and there is a sort of breaking development in this. Oh, really? We're, we're on news. <laughs> we are, we're on news. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're breaking now. news. Right, breaking the little news. screen. Right. Um, so there is another model. It is not multimodal, but it is a multitask model, a, a conversational model out of Google called Lambda. It's been publicized in, at Google I.O. and things like that. that. But somebody who I think has gotten fired from Google now leaked a transcript of talking to this model and has titled this transcript is lambda sentient an interview this was published yesterday as of the oh. of this podcast on june 11th mm. 2022 and basically making the case that maybe this model is sentient <laughs> and uh, this is going to be quite a show i'm sure a lot of people are gonna have a lot of thoughts on this we will link it in the show description i so far i have not gotten to immerse myself in this the latest development so but yeah We'll There's see. just too much to keep up with. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I think we covered a lot of things. Yeah. So we have like talked through a bunch of these implications and there's like, I'm sure a ton more. And, uh, you know, there are, are new models coming out every day and new controversies coming out every day about the existing <laughs> models. But I think that, you know, to kind of bring it back to the, the, the framework that we like to think about. So these are all the implications and, and how can we get there? I think that we're pretty close to a lot of the the things that we talked about, like a few steps on, like a few more publications and a few more architecture revisions to getting to, you know, maybe some household helper ro robots and things like this. Are, are um, we that optimistic? Because like previous optimism in AI before resulted in large AI winters. So how sure of you are of this? I think that um, we're pretty close. I think that the fact, like I said at the top of the episode, the fact that these research labs are putting out press releases about these models that sound, would otherwise sound completely absurd, but they're doing it with a straight face. I don't think that 
it would be rational of them to do this unless they felt like things were moving in that direction. Of course, uh -huh. there's going to be a bunch of work in order to get these out and working in the real world. I think that, you know, the the last, you know, 20% or last 10% of of work is going to take up, you know, maybe, maybe the next decade. But I think that at least an 80% good household robot would be feasible in the next couple of years. And then the rest of the time would be actually making it like handle all of the different little edge cases right if not insult various groups and not be a dick to everybody that uses it <laughs> yeah exactly but the main thrust of it the main idea of it is probably you know feasible yeah yeah, yeah. i see yeah yeah so like you said we cover a lot of ground and like this is one of those things that i think will change like out of all the things that we talk about this is probably going to be one of the biggest changes that's coming i don't know i think we talk about a lot of like game-changing technologies uh but yeah, yeah, yeah. Overall, like this, this, this is the most obvious one with, with, I think the most unclear future out of all the ones that we talk about, but yeah. yeah. So yeah, I mean, like, I guess we'll just keep waiting for the researchers to do stuff. And then eventually like the application developers and founders will pick it up and sooner rather than later, we'll see these things infiltrate our lives for better or for worse. So, so uh, yeah, we definitely, for our listeners, we have de definitely plenty of other episodes with mind blowing insights into the latest technology across different parts of technology and we try to cover the gamut and so tune into other stuff shalaka subscribe share i always forget what to share like subscribe yeah subscribe. hit that bell whatever it is that you need to do we have more interesting tidbits about the edge of technology coming up so shri do you have anything to add in our closing bits no i think you covered it also just put us some comments in the comment section for what you think, how close we are, and potential other use cases. Imagine that you had these models as behind an API. What would you build? Would love to hear. That's right. Yep. Let us know down in the comments in the obligatory pointing. So, anyways, yeah. uh, three, three point, 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 point. Oh, There you go. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah cool. there we go. All right. Anyways, <laughs> so this is Will, and this is Shree signing off, and we'll see you next time on another episode of the Technium. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.